This podcast is made possible by Workiva and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Tom O'Flynn, CFO of AES, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 404. Um, when the credit crisis happened in 2008-2009, the company had refined amount debt at very bad terms. We need to figure out how to restructure the capital structure because that was putting a lot of pressure on the share price. Goldman Sachs tells us we actually talked to several of the large uh, advisory firms, but they were the most creative. So we came up with a way to do it in five almost simultaneous transactions. That was actually interesting getting the board to feel comfortable to approve that because that hadn't been done before. Uh, but it worked. It added about $500 million to the comp- company's market cap almost overnight. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we're pleased to feature Juan Figueroa, a career finance executive who has served as CFO of Revlon Corporation, Newell Brands, and Cot Brands. Along the way, he oversaw M&A for Walmart and more. It was all part of a great finance career adventure that spanned three decades and three continents. Our discussion with Juan begins after these words from our sponsor. Workiva transforms the way people work through connected reporting and compliance. The facts are... A majority of senior accounting and finance professionals say their financial reporting involves a huge amount of manual work and is inherently error-prone, leading to risk. Risk that's intensified by new business complexities and the changing business climate. Linked data elements, numbers, narrative, and calculations together everywhere you use them. When you change data at the source, it's changed at the destination. Gaining trust in your data and processes is that simple. Join over 3,500 customers who enjoy the benefits of using Workiva by connecting their organizations from record to report. Visit workiva.com slash CFO. leader who has served as CFO for multiple marquee companies, including Revlon Corporation, Newell Brands, Cot Brands. He oversaw M&A for Walmart at a point in time and turned the page back. He was once CFO of Frito-Lay Europe and CFO of Pepsi Latin America. Today, he's a board member and chairs the audit committee of PVH, the Fortune uh, 500 apparel company. Juan, welcome. Thank you, Jack. Happy to be here with you. Yeah, wonderful to have you. And uh, this first question, I realize, could be pretty challenging given how varied your career has been in finance. Uh, at the same time, I've been looking forward to asking it. Uh, Juan, if you wouldn't mind, 
Okay. Tell us a little bit about those experiences you feel prepared you for a CFO role. What would you tell us? I would say that the three things that are essential to a C, having a CFO in really almost any industry, and as a former CFO in four public companies, I have been fortunate to work in different industries from technology to consumer goods to commercial products. But regardless of where you are, you have to have a very strong technical background. You also have to have fairly broad and strong finance, corporate finance skills. And ideally, ideally, you have strong industry or international skills. So the first is on the, on the technical skills. Uh, it doesn't have to be across all subjects of finance, but it has to be, in my view, across at least one or two or more. Uh, for example, you could be very strong in financial planning and analysis and FD&A, very strong in controls, or very strong in treasury. But typically, most CFOs will be strong in two or more. In my case, I started my career with Arthur Anderson and Company, a CPA firm out of the Miami office. So that gave me, right at the, at the beginning of my career, the technical foundation, very strong skills in accounting and control. Now, I want to mention, towards the front of your career, you did make an investment, as so many executives do, with specific companies. In other words, you were there longer than five years at, at Arthur Anderson. In Pepsi, you were there a, a very long stretch. Now, Frito-Lay, of course, became part of Pepsi. But what would you tell us? Why was the investment of time in those companies, do you believe, important to your career? Now, the first point was Arthur Anderson. I was there eight years. I left as a senior manager. Frankly, looking back, that's probably longer than I needed to be there to build that fundamental uh, strength on the technical skills. But I wasn't sure at the time if I wanted to stay for the long haul with the large firms uh, like that, consulting, etc. You either uh, stay for the long haul and you become a partner, or you stay maybe five years, build your technical skills, your work ethics, and then you move on. So in my case, I think once I decided that I didn't want to become a partner and decided to move on, uh, seven to eight years was probably a little longer than I needed, but I had fun at it. It was in the Miami office, beach, sun, etc. It was a good time. And then later on with PepsiCo, it was really more about pursuing a dream. I wanted to go internationally. I wanted to visit other places. And I was looking for a company that could offer that. And uh, when Pepsi called, it was for a finance director, really almost like a system controller position in the international division that had uh, a way to leverage my strengths, which is something that you want. When you take, every time you make a move, ideally, you want to move into a position that leverages the strength that you either have or are developing. And so that first one out of public accounting with Pepsi offered that. I was with them 15 years. In those 15 years, I had nine jobs in both Pepsi and Frito-Lay and moved eight times, really, all over the world. <laughs> Now, that's a frequent flyer, I have to say. I want to learn more about Pepsi. 
But first, I wanted to have you re- reflect some more on your experience at Arthur Anderson, uh, w- which can be credited with launching the careers of thousands of finance leaders. For those who may not be familiar with Arthur Anderson, uh, this was not a culture of elites. This was uh, not striving to be the accounting world's McKinsey. Arthur Anderson was a firm known for its appetite for work, and it hired people who were ready uh, to work long hours. And in return, uh, for all that work experience, its people were extremely loyal. Now, uh, would you agree with uh, part of what I, I said here, or all of it, or what do you think? All of that reflects my experience with Arthur Anderson. So let me start with the last part when you said loyal. I left Arthur Anderson in 1988. And to this day, since then, every other year, I attend the alumni reunion that they have every year, the South Florida practice. And so you might say, but they don't exist. <laughs> they, have, they cease to exist for a long time. And that is the beauty of it. A firm that no longer exists still can pull the alumni from really all over the country every other year to South Florida for an alumni reunion. Three, four hundred people. It's just it's amazing. And the, the hard work, the integrity, the focus on building strength, technical skills, the training, all of that I think is what made the culture unique, made people come together really it's almost no other firm or company that I worked for uh, has done since. And I don't think even today when you look at the big four or some of the big consulting firms, I don't think anybody can claim that, that they can pull people who worked for them 20 years ago into their alumni reunions. And as for Pepsi, uh, we've had other uh, finance leaders with Pepsi Roots. They would tell us the training, the development track, that they were put on there was hard to match uh, once they left. Uh, any any uh, similar experience, or what would you uh, what would you tell us about Pepsi? Yeah, I would just echo that. Pepsi is known as a uh, it's almost legendary for developing finance talent. I think there are very few Fortune 100 companies that have produced as many public companies CFOs as Pepsi. Just like GE in the past used to be for CEOs, Pepsi was for finance, for finance talent. A uh, lot of emphasis on development. For example, there used to be an unwritten rule that you could not get promoted if you had not developed your talent, your, uh, sorry, your successor. And so you were always uh, <coughs> moving up in Pepsi, uh, very high performance oriented culture. So basically, you were either moving up or moving out. But in the process to move up, you really had to develop your talent. I told you <clears throat> that in the 15 years that I was there, I had nine jobs moved eight times. And so I, on average, about 18 months, I would take a new job and relocate, go somewhere else. And every time, that was because it was the business need, but it was also a developmental opportunity to learn something new, do something different. I mean, I learned everything from technical skills, from more about the business, to languages and cultures. Having lived in Brazil twice, I lived in Rio, lived in Sao Paulo, in Barcelona, London, Santo Domingo, really just all over the place. And 
Things don't change, I imagine, when you go to Walmart, where you oversaw M&A and uh, your work involved the Far East and China. I did the largest uh, acquisition in retail in China when I was with Walmart, but my base was in the U.S. I was based in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is where Walmart is headquartered. I was there four years, and I would say the companies that, <coughs> that I have worked with Walmart probably walked the talk better than any other. In, in many ways, it's, a, it's an extraordinary company. Uh, my four years that I was there in M&A were very active. I told you then about China, and that was fascinating because China, um, even then, uh, if Walmart had been a country, it would have been China's eighth largest trading partner. And consequently, the Chinese government, who really runs the country like a business, treated Walmart like a country. So when the CEO of Walmart at the time when I was there was Lee Scott, uh, went to China, he would meet with the vice premier. And when I was there um, negotiating and doing the prep for my deal, they assigned the vice minister of the MOFCOM, of the Ministry of Finance and Commerce, to work with me. And basically track the progress on our deal. It was just amazing how involved they are in commerce in China. That, just from a, I'm curious, you you already had the title uh, CFO while you were at Pepsi for a number of regions and groups. Um, you go to Walmart as vice president of M&A. Uh, you could have gone into multiple CFO roles, no doubt, in other companies, other uh, other other large enterprises, most likely, and, and clearly there was something you wanted to sink your teeth into. But why not a CFO role at that point in time? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And so the answer is because not everything is about work. And uh, just before I joined Walmart, we were living in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. I was general manager uh, for Frito-Lay there. And my wife and I had agreed that when our two younger daughters were going to high school, we would get back to the States and we would try to stay in one place so they could finish high school in one place. And so when I started looking to get back uh, to the States, and I started talking to Walmart, really, uh, it was about a CFO, a regional CFO position. Um, <clears throat> but um, we had a very strong preference for Bentonville, Arkansas, believe it or not, because of the quality of the school system. Between Walmart, J.D. Hunt, and Tyson Foods, all of which are headquartered in that region, they had endowed this, the public school system um, with a lot of talent. They brought the number one high school principal in the nation, the number one um, superintendent, uh, which was from somewhere in Michigan, and they had given the school so much money, it was just unbelievable the amount of resources they had. So that was a big factor in, in my decision. I was there four years, and uh, I enjoyed those four years, but as you uh, point out, uh, it was much narrower than anything I had done before. So after four years, I was ready to move on. Okay, well, before we move in to what is a, really a series of CFO tours of duty, uh, one last time looking back, I want to say that uh, Pepsi 
was where you became a leader. And Anderson was really uh, maybe a launching pad. Do you like how I sort of titled those chapters? I think so. I think that's fair. I think Anderson was formative in my career. They gave me the basic skills, the strong technical skills, the uh, work ethic and integrity that was essential for success at Pepsi. But later at Pepsi, they put a lot of money and investment in me in training, uh, both in uh, formal courses, internal development that I attended, but also some of the assignments that they so Pepsi was when I really learned to be a business leader. And also Pepsi is famous for developing finance talent that is focused on the business, not just on the technical on the technical skills. It used to be that you could not rise in finance in Pepsi if you hadn't had a business assignment. And I had two large ones. One of them I was doing uh, supply chain and manufacturing integration for Western Europe, and the other was as a general manager for Frito-Lay in the Dominican Republic. They wanted finance to be the partners or the, or the business leaders, and for that, you had to really understand the business ideally by having been involved in it yourself. So I thought that was really was a great you leave Walmart then, and of course you do step into a CFO role, I believe, at Cut Beverages. Or were you? Uh, was it a number of years before you uh, entered the CFO office? I went from Walmart into Cut as CFO. Uh, Cut um, was um, private label retainer brand soft drinks, water at the time. Uh, they had suffered a margin squeeze. This is when commodity prices were low, minimal, as I said, I were really high. And private label, you tend to have very thin margins. Um, Walmart was their largest customer with over 30% of sales at the time. And the um, CEO was former AB InBev. The head of HR, most important in this case, was a former Pepsi who knew I had obviously from Pepsi a lot of soft drink experience, but also I had a bottling business turnaround experience because one of my assignments at PepsiCo in Brazil had been turning around a large franchise bottling operation that had gotten into trouble. That and also coming from Walmart, Walmart being the largest customer, I kind of checked all the boxes, everything they needed. Uh, for a CFO in the middle of an operating turnaround. I want to know, did you enjoy turnaround work? Is it, I, I mean, did you, you enjoyed it? Why? <laughs> yes, it's exciting, and you get an opportunity to make changes. you got to move fast, you got to make the changes fast, but you get an opportunity to make changes in the business and to see the impact. Typically, in an ongoing operation where things are going well, um, you're more of a steward, yeah, you're moving the business forward, but you don't make wholesale changes as you do uh, during a turnaround. So it's exciting, exhilarating, gets your, your gets the best out of you, gets you to learn, and, uh, and you can see the impact of your actions. You can also see when you screw up really fast. Um, like when we, uh, when I went for that turnaround, turnaround in Brazil, I went in as a CFO, 
and we were losing $30 million a month. So that's about a million dollars a day cash flow. Um, cash flow bleed. All the banks I caught, all the credit lines, the suppliers basically had put us in COD. And so we had to move quickly initially to stem the cash drain. We did things like cut 30% of the, of the workforce. Uh, we exited unprofitable customers, and we closed down and shut down plants and warehouses that were not profitable. Well, as it turned out, we cut too deep too much. We had to put some of that, that cost back. So we made mistakes, but we fixed them within less than six months. We had actually, within about two months, we were cash flow positive, and within six months, we were profitable again. It was really quick, but the first two months, we moved so fast, we made we made quite a few mistakes. Obviously, we did things mostly right since we, were, we had good, good success. Now, your, your, uh, your next uh, CFO uh, tour of duty at Newell Brands, and, and Newell, uh, of course, makes everything from Sharpie to PaperMate, Rubbermaid products. Uh, anyway, it's quite expansive. We know the brand names. We not uh, not everyone might know it's Newell. What would you tell us about that experience? It looks like another turnaround opportunity as well, in part. I wouldn't call it a turnaround. I would say it was more of a kind of a refocus of the business. Newell was doing well. It was a Fortune 500 already at the point when I joined them, and they were profitable. But the CEO had come from the board, former P&G, Procter & Gamble, and wanted to refocus the company on growth. And also the Europe division was not profitable, had not been growing, and um, he wanted, he was looking for a CFO who had Europe experience, which I did have, having been CFO of South Europe and also restructuring supply chains in Frito-Lay in Western Europe. And for somebody who could also help, have the leadership school, uh, skills and knowledge uh, to help him refocus the company on growth. Um, and on the technical front, um, when the credit crisis happened in 2008-2009, the company had refinanced debt at very bad terms. And so there was, a lot of, there was debt that had a lot of hair in it. It had been designed to run to maturity. We needed to figure out how to restructure the capital structure because that was putting a lot of pressure on the share price. So going in, that was the mission. Uh, the business was doing okay. It wasn't doing great. Uh, so I wouldn't call it a turn, up, turn around. It was more of refocus the company. And uh, we did that fairly quickly with a lot of success, including making Europe profitable. And uh, the restructuring of the capital structure, you will forgive me, but I have to mention an advisor this time, um, Goldman Sachs helped us. We actually talked to several of the large uh, advisory firms, but they were the most creative. So we came up with a way to do it in five almost simultaneous transactions. That was actually interesting getting the board to feel comfortable to approve that because that hadn't been done before. Uh, but it worked. And so Goldman got nominated for transaction of the year by Investor Magazine for that, for that project. It added about $500 million to the company's market cap almost overnight. Now, let me understand when something like this uh, 
is brought forth. As the finance leader, are you sort of the measured skeptic, or do you, in fact, are you, in fact, the champion? I was, I was the champion of the initiative. Obviously, capital structure is the CFO responsibility. So I was, and I was very hands-on involved because it was so complex and so difficult. Uh, and the same thing for Europe. At the same time, I was just as involved in doing what uh, we needed to do. It was mostly about uh, product life cycles, uh, company structure, etc., to get Europe profitable. So I, ha- I took my uh, CFO for Western Europe, put him in charge of that, and uh, I was very, very involved. I was there almost every three weeks at the same time, which is one of the advice I would have for your listeners. I mean, when things really matter, you've got to be involved, hands-on. You've you got to give people the space they need to do what they need to do. You cannot, you cannot be looking over their shoulder. If you have to, then you don't have the right person to replace them. But you've got to be hands-on. You've got to lead from the front. Give people space. Okay. Well, what else? <laughs> we want more as far as your leadership style and the lessons you you learned along the way. Is there something else you'd share? Yeah, I, I think to, to a large degree that was part of what I learned at Pepsi. They do really a really good job of uh, ingraining people development in you. But you learn that you have to have the best talent you can get. Not to feel threatened by people because Pepsi, right, if you did not have your successor in place, you could not move on. So you got to ideally, if you can find them, you got to hire people who are better than you. And you got to develop them and then give them the space um, to make things happen. If you find yourself that you're having to micromanage or you're having to be on looking over people's shoulders, and I've had situations like that, then you have the wrong person. You just make the change fast. I used to be criticized at Pepsi for pulling the trigger too fast in some cases with people you know, giving them a chance. But frankly, it's better to be too fast to the trigger than to be too slow. Because the wrong person in a job can do damage. Particularly in my situation, I told you I had nine jobs in 15 years. So every time, it was fairly short period of time, and there had to be an outcome at the end. I really didn't have time uh, for people who did not pull their weight. I want to ask if you would, for a moment, make a comparison for me uh, between the CFO role and and a pilot. And uh, let's say the pilot flew uh, a plane during the early part of his career differently than he or she flies it today. Now, he or she is more experienced, and, and maybe they rely less on certain controls or practices than they did back then. If I was to ask you how, you know, when you step in that cockpit today, is there something missing here? Is there something been added? Is there something you're using now more than ever that you never looked at 20 years ago? What, what to, to do the job or fill it? Um, it is similar, but let me use, let me use uh, a different example. Uh, I'm a Star Trek fan. I used to watch the old and the new Star Trek. So there was the original episode of The Wrath of Khan, 
where they have this um, this bioengineered uh, group of people who were put into hibernation, and they wake up centuries later, and they come aboard the Enterprise. And so Khan is reading through technology, and he says, it's just amazing how much everything has changed, how technology has evolved. But it is also amazing how little man himself has changed. And so today, those are the two things that I see different. Technology is bringing about a pace of change that as a CFO, really, you've got to be strong in your technical skills. You've got to do all those things. But really, where you can add value is in the business strategy with your CEO, where you allocate the capital, uh, where you allocate your best resources to make sure that your company can keep moving at the speed necessary to maintain or gain position in the market. And today is different than it used to be 10, uh, 15 years ago. The speed of change is huge. If you are anywhere in consumer goods, I bet that your markets, your go-to-market, your consumers are changing. For the first time, we have two large groups of consumers, the baby boomers, the generation which I belong. Uh, we changed the world. We created the Pepsi generation. We still have the largest purchasing power. But today, the millennials is a cohort that's actually bigger than the baby boomers with increasing purchasing power and very different wants, needs, and to some degree, different consumption habits. And so that creates a stress for companies in the space, generally in the consumer good space. How do you cater to both? Cater to one? which has different needs from the other without giving up the other. So the millennials are the future, but still your bread and butter is. And so to see if you got to make sure your company is up to that, that the strategy is right. On the technical front, technology is bringing a lot of change. Things like cybersecurity. I didn't have to worry about that 15 years ago. And today is a topic that's on the agenda almost every single day. And so that part has changed. What hasn't changed, like the wrath of Khan, is human nature. So people behave somewhat different, but the core behaviors are the same. You look at the millennials, uh, for example, and so what happens is technology today amplifies or facilitates behaviors that are still core behaviors, I would say. Um, take, take social media, whether it's Facebook, uh, Twitter or Instagram, anything like that. So word of mouth has always been important. Back before that, we always knew in consumer goods that people believed someone entrusted someone like them a lot better than they did a paid actor or any kind of paid agent. And we look for ways to create that trust. In advertising with consumers, the kind of people you hire, the story you told, etc. Uh, but now today, you don't need to hire someone and act like that because people have access to thousands uh, of opinions and opinion leaders through social media. But the core behavior is the same. So that part has no change. And if you have that base, basic understanding, whether it's apply to technical front or to marketing and to consumer marketing and market growth, you still 
can win. And that, that still, I think, is important. And I think it's something that people miss some of the time, thinking that if you've got, if you know uh, digital technology, if you know the technology piece, but you don't know the human aspect, you can win. And invariably, the ones who win are the, are the ones that can master both. Uh, some happen by accident, some happen by design, but if you look at all of them, those two elements are there. The technology and the understanding or catering to the core human human needs. Wonderful. Uh, thank you for rescuing my metaphor as well. I want to enter the latest career chapter. But first, I have to share a quick word from one of our favorite sponsors. We'll be right back. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Of course, you had two, uh, you had two other CMO tours in duty within the last 10 years. One uh, with, was it uh, Nextel International Holdings, or how, how would it be... Uh, I would say 
the next job today. Keep learning. So we do those. Maybe we'll be CFO. Maybe we'll be CEO. But we can definitely outperform our peers. One of the uh, important aspects of CFO leadership is being able to partner with the CEO, of course. You have partnered with some very compassionate, strong-minded, strategic-minded CEOs. Uh, Is there any advice you can offer about how that chemistry, how you've been able to achieve the chemistry you have over time with so many? Yeah, well, I'm confident that it's not worth it, and I have less over that. Because, in essence, the role of the CFO is to help the CEO be successful. You can understand what the strategy is that the CEO wants to implement. You can implement that strategy if you want. If there's alignment, you've got to help your um, CEO. And so that means being aggressive when you need to, being passive when you need to, but always looking for a way to complement the CEO to help him or her be successful. But if the chemistry is not there, and a big part of that chemistry is the trust, the mutual trust has to be there. If the chemistry is not there, then at the CFO, you don't want to be successful when you see what you got to be picking out of that. Can you ever look back and say, why didn't I jump at that point in time? I have to believe there were plenty of recruiters seeking you throughout your career. There were opportunities that did get put in front of you. You didn't take them, perhaps. <laughs> that didn't come to mind when I asked you that question. Any second guesses? No, not really. I don't have a lot of that. I'm also a man of faith, and so I believe that there's some things that are in your destiny. And so there's sometimes it comes your way and you don't realize it, you fight it, and life makes things difficult for you. But when you go in that route, just things begin to happen for you. Well, so when you go into that groove, regardless of how difficult, difficult things are, but that everything is lining up for you, you know that you're going the way you're supposed to go. When things get just too difficult, almost impossible, you seem to be running into walls. Just ask yourself, is what I should be doing? Maybe not. Juan Figueiredo, thank you for joining us on CFO Talking. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOThoughtLeader.com.